Welcome to a new session of the London Aesthetics Forum. Uh, this is a forum generously supported by the British Society of Aesthetics, and this talk in particular is also supported by Heathrop College, so we are also grateful to them. It is a great pleasure to have Professor Kendall Walton uh, with us today. Professor Walton is Charles Stevenson Collegiate Professor at the University of Michigan. He is the author of the influential book, My Messes as Make Believe, on the foundations of representational arts. And he's working on another book, In Other Shoes, it's the name, Essays on Music, Metaphor, Empathy, and Existence. Professor Walton has written extensively on pictorial representation, fiction, and the emotions the ontological status of fictional entities, the aesthetics of music, metaphor, and aesthetic value. He, had, he has had fellowships from the National Endowments from the Humanities, the American Council for Learned Societies, the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Stanford Humanities Center. He's a fellow of the American Academy of the Arts and Sciences and past president of the American Society for Aesthetics. The title of Professor Walton's talk today is Understatement, Overstatement, and Irony. Thank you very much. So, I'm not sure that this talk is about aesthetics. Um, it's about uh, various figures of speech, and I'm sure that it connects with aesthetics eventually. Uh, but I'm not going to really make those connections very explicit this time. So. Um, uh, you'll just have to extrapolate, I think. But obviously, uh, understatement, overstatement, and irony are very important in literary works and also in other kinds of works of art as well. And so I'm sure that I hope that what I have to say will have eventually some connection uh, with those things. Anyway, what I'm going to do today is mainly to try to understand the role of understatement, overstatement, and their connections with irony, um, um, understand how they work in conversation and so forth. So it's attempting to assume that overstatement and understatement are analogous figures of speech and should be analyzed similarly. Understatement is just saying less than one means, it seems, while overstatement is saying more than one means and a number of theorists and, uh, have uh, lumped them together. Uh, Goodman, for instance, treats them similarly. And uh, Raymond Gibbs, and also in an, one edition of the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics, regards both understatement and overstatement as species of, uh, of irony. But it seems to me that they have hugely different, that understatement and overstatement have hugely different roles in conversation. Understatement is akin to irony. Maybe it's a species of irony, depending on how exactly you define irony. But overstatement is an entirely different kettle of fish. Um, so I'm going to be using mainly very mundane, simple, boring examples in order to keep things from getting uh, too complicated too soon. Uh, but before getting started, I'll just give you, let you look at, think about uh, small selection of more interesting examples. Um, overstatement Gulliver's Travels is presumably overstating, uh, involves overstatement, uh, the idea that wars are fought over whether to crack eggs in the big or the little end. And uh, that's uh, maybe an overstatement of how ridiculous the reasons are for uh, uh, fighting wars in the real world. Uh, if I say I'm in favor of something 110%, uh, that sounds like an overstatement, and I guess it is an overstatement, although I'm in favor of 110%, it's not clear that that even makes sense. Uh, but anyway, understatement in general, I think, is more interesting than overstatement. Um, one instance of understatement, I think, is, is it Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz? I can't remember who says we aren't in Kansas anymore. Uh, and that I, is it Dorothy? I can't remember. Uh, uh, probably. Uh, and that probably is an understatement because not only are they not in Kansas anymore, it's not just that they are in Nebraska or Colorado or even New York or London. They're really, really not in Kansas anymore. Uh, and another example, a single nuclear bomb could ruin your whole day um, is presumably an understatement. In response to that, you might, one might say, gosh, it might even ruin a week or a month. 
And uh, that too is an understatement, maybe not quite as understated as the first one. Um, if the second, that is, gosh, it might even ruin a week or a month, that could be a way of pointing out that uh, it could ruin your whole day, uh, is pointing out that that is an understatement, but then it understates how much of an understatement that is. Uh, anyway, things get complicated quickly, so I'm going to uh, focus on boring, simple examples, uh, at least to start. Actually, for mostly uh, during this talk today. Um, so you see on your handout uh, uh, some examples here. Um, looking out my window, I see to my surprise a dozen or so policemen on the street in front of my house. And so I may say to a companion, there are a couple of cops out there. That's an understatement because there are actually a dozen or so. Um, or I might exaggerate and I might say there are hundreds of cops out there which uh, ex uh, overstates, exaggerates the number of cops that are out there. In neither of these cases do I expect my companion to understand either that there are only two policemen on the corner or that there are literally hundreds. What I mean to get across is something in between. And it's going to be pretty vague, of course, but what I mean to get across, whether I exaggerate or understate, uh, is going to be something like, let's say, that there are quite a few cops out there. That is significantly more than two and significantly fewer than 200. I'm trying to get across something like that. Whether I'm, whether I, I'm exaggerating or understating, something like that is what I'm trying to get across, uh, let's assume. So I'll call this the assertive content of the utterance. And it's the assertive content uh, approximately the same, I'm suggesting uh, for both one and two, that is both the understatement and the overstatement. Uh, I'm perhaps stretching the notion of assertion a little bit. Uh, the assertion, or some people might call this the communicative content. What I want, what I want, or expect my hearers to understand when I say either in this situation there are a couple cops out there, or there are hundreds of cops out there. Uh, the explicit content is of what I say uh, when in one is that there are two cops on the corner. That's more or less taking that sentence literally in the context. And the explicit content of uh, two, there are hundreds of cops out there, is that there are hundreds of cops out there. Um, so it seems that in understatement generally, uh, the uh, explicit content is less than or smaller than the assertive content. This is just a way of saying that I, in understatement, I say less than I mean. And in overstatement, generally, the explicit content is larger than the assertive content. I'm saying more than I mean. So this uh, a little, this is pretty simple so far. Um, on the top of page two, a little diagram. Uh, there should be arrows, that black line should have arrows uh, one pointing to the right, uh, which is the direction of more cops, and the one pointing to the left is the direction of fewer cops. And so the assertive content is quite a few in both cases. That's what the speaker is trying to get across. And in the uh, understatement case, um, the EC is to the left of the AC, and the uh, uh, overstatement cases to the right. Okay. Um, this seems simple enough, but the difference threatens to evaporate when we realize that to understate how large a quantity is, is uh, also, it seems, to overstate or exaggerate how small it is and vice versa, that is, the arrows could be going either direction. Uh, one example to illustrate this is uh, three, which I have, that's on page two. Um, he was hospitalized for a month, and they had to spend a few dollars on medical expenses. Uh, this statement, depending on the context, might be either, or maybe both, either an understatement of how expensive the hospitalization was, or an overstatement of how inexpensive 
that was. Okay, or you might uh, you might say that it's both of those at once. Uh, and one and two could be uh, uh, could be understood as both understatements. As e either of them could be understood as either uh, an overstatement or an understatement or both. So the question, is there any real difference at all between understatement and overstatement? Must understatement and overstatement be relativized to what we might call a direction of the relevant scale, which way the arrows go? Uh, or is there no such thing as overstatement simpliciter, uh, utterance or a, a statement that's just an overstatement and not an understatement? And is there no such thing as understatement simpliciter? Um, there certainly seems to be a real difference between the two figures. Uh, theorists usually don't have much trouble deciding which is which in particular cases. And it probably seems strained to, I, I just left out a special example, but it probably, well, I'll come back to that. It probably seems strained to think of one as an exaggeration of how few cops there are on the corner. And it may seem positively perverse to call two an understatement of how few, uh, this is, there's a mistake here. Uh, call, uh, where's two again? Uh, sorry. Uh, it probably seems strained to consider, uh, to regard one an exaggeration. Um, of how few cops there are, um, and pro uh, perverse to call two an understatement of how many there are is what I mean. Okay. Uh, anyway, some surface differences uh, which su will suggest that uh, these two figures of speech are used very differently in conversation. Uh, uh, what seem to be intuitively to be paradigmatic instances of over and overstatement and understatement are used in very different circumstances and they function in different ways. Understatement is often the figure of choice when the point the speaker means to make is obvious, that is when the AC is obviously true, that is when the ad addressee uh, knows already that it's so even if, the, if she needs reminding or when the addressee can easily understand, uh, under, uh, discover for themselves that it is. So if my companion is with me in front of the window overlooking the cop's corner and either sees the cops herself, the, herself, the dozen or so cops, or can easily see them by looking up from her newspaper, then I'm likely to say there are a couple of cops there. She'll look out the window and she'll see what I mean. Uh, that there are dozens, a dozen or whatever. So I would be pointing out the obvious in understating or inviting her to look for herself. Um, it's a little bit like saying, look, look at how many cops there are out there. And we might compare it with a knowing wink uh, or something like that. But if the addressee, the, per the hearer, is in the back room or on the telephone in another state, I'm likely to pick the overstatement figure to make my point to say there are millions or it's hundreds of cops out there um, rather than the understatement or else I might just speak literally and say there are a, a dozen cops out there or quite a few cops out there and so forth. So knowing that the, per that the person I'm addressing cannot see for herself, I, take, I intend her to take my word for it that there are many, uh, quite a few cops on the corner and so I'm likely to say that uh, uh, explicitly, uh, literally, or I might exaggerate uh, and say there are hundreds knowing that she's not going to take that literally because there probably aren't hundreds and so forth. Um, in both cases, I intend by saying what I do, the, her to believe or to notice that there are quite a few cops on the corner. Um, um, in the exaggeration case, uh, my utterance, the fact that I said what I did, is probably also part of her reason for believing that that's true, that she takes my word for it. Uh, it uh, uh, takes my testimony to be evidence that that's so. But in the other understatement case, she probably has her own reason to believe it, 
or she can confirm this easily by glancing out the window. So she doesn't have to take... I don't expect... The speaker doesn't expect her to take my word for it that there are a dozen or so, quite a few cops out there. Uh, so I understand, I say there are a couple, and expect her to find out, have her own evidence by uh, looking uh, uh, for the fact that there are uh, quite a few, which is what I'm trying to get across. Um, the workings of, of one, the understatement, as I described them, are typical of understatement um, generally, um, and the same for overstatement. If I say, Einstein is rather clever, that's an understatement, and I might say that expecting my hearers to have independent reason to think that Einstein is not just clever, but, it, but uh, positively brilliant, um, which is the point I mean to be making. So uh, Einstein is a rather clever, understood as an understated way of pointing out, saying that Einstein is, is uh, positively brilliant. But I'm li less likely to say if I have a, a little son named Johnny who is uh, positively brilliant, I probably won't express that understatedly by saying little Johnny is uh, reasonably intelligent uh, because you don't know little Johnny and you can't see for yourself how uh, positively brilliant little Johnny is. So probably I will say about Johnny then something literal. I'll say he's, uh, he is uh, uh, positively brilliant and expect you to take my word for it. Or else I might exaggerate and I might say that little Johnny is an absolute genius, he's another Einstein, which would be an exaggerated way of getting across to you uh, what I know but you don't know until I tell you uh, that little Johnny is, is positively brilliant. Uh, okay. Uh, this is typical of irony also. Um, if I say that... Uh, uh, it's a wonderful day for a picnic. Uh, I don't know if this is on your handout or not. I think I didn't put it on your handout. If I say uh, um, it's a wonderful day for a picnic, uh, meaning this ironically, that would make a perfectly, perfectly reasonable thing to do when we all see how hard it's raining. Okay, so you can see for yourself what I actually mean, which is that it's a terrible day for a picnic. Okay, so, uh, but on the other hand, if you're in another state or whatever, uh, I probably won't, uh, uh, or I'm less likely maybe to be ironic, uh, because you can't see that it's actually raining, uh, cats and dogs or whatever, so I'm more likely to say something uh, uh, more uh, 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 exaggerate or say so, or just put it literally. Uh, this uh, helps to explain the sarcastic bite of irony. If I say to someone, what a fine friend you are, meaning that you're a terrible friend, you've just let me down, and so forth, uh, I'm relying on the obviousness of this point. Uh, at least I'm implying that it's obvious, uh, since I irony and understatement both tend to be used when the point that the speaker is trying to make is really obvious. So I'm implying then that it is obvious, and so I'm, I'm in effect saying to my uh, bad friend uh, that not only are you a terrible friend, but it's obvious that you're a ter terrible friend. And that's, of course, uh, a kind of sarcastic bite. Uh, okay. Another way to see that under an overstatement, as they are intuitively classified, uh, are different, is to look at natural ways of paraphrasing or glossing understatements and overstatements. Um, uh, take two, the exaggeration. There are hundreds of cops out there. One way of putting the point the exaggerating speaker means to get across is something like this. It's as though there are hundreds of cops on the corner, or it's almost as if there are hundreds of cops on the corner, or maybe there might as well be hundreds of cops on the corner. These are not, of course, exact paraphrases, but they uh, make approximately the same point uh, in an exaggerated way, perhaps. Um, 
And this paraphrase is suggested by the words the exaggerator uses, but it might serve to paraphrase the understater's uh, uh, assertive content as well. That is, the understater may be trying to get across uh, something like it's as though or almost as if there are hundreds of cops on the street uh, by saying there are a couple of cops on the street, uh, on the corner. Okay, but an analogous paraphrase suggested by the understater's words is entirely unacceptable. Uh, consider this. Uh, the understater says there are a couple of cops out there. It would not do to gloss that by saying it's as though there are only a couple of cops there it's, or it's almost as if there are a couple of cops there or there might as well just be two. To say that would be to, would be to say something quite contrary to what the speaker of, of, uh, of the understatement uh, means to be saying. Uh, one way of putting what the understater means to get across is the fact that, is to say uh, simply that what she says is an understatement. If the hearer is dense and doesn't see that it's an understatement, she might make it explicit. So the understater might say, there are a couple of cops there, and that's an understatement. Okay, Or she might make her point literally and boringly by saying, to say that there are a couple of cops there would be a massive understatement. Uh, that would, uh, is a boring approximation of the plain understated statement. But the exaggerator, the exaggerator, the speaker of two, probably will not be eager to emphasize that he is exaggerating. So uh, rather that uh, he probably will not explain to a dense hearer who might take him literally, there are hundreds of cops there and that is an exaggeration. Uh, he might say this, there are hundreds of cops there, but that is an exaggeration. Uh, but the exaggerator, the speaker of two, surely will not make his point by saying, to say that there are a couple of cops there would be a massive understatement. Uh, uh, sorry, I mean massive exaggeration, don't I? Uh, yeah, to say that there are a couple of cops there, uh, sorry, to say there are a couple of cops there would be a massive understatement. So to recognize that one is an understatement, to recognize that the sentence one is an understatement is to get the point, that is to get the point that the speaker means to be making, but recognizing two as an overstatement is not the same as uh, getting the point that the overstater is trying to make. Um, okay. So, how to explain, uh, in particular, how to explain uh, how to distinguish between the two figures, uh, what it is for to count as a statement as an uh, overstatement simpliciter, or an understatement simpliciter. Um, this depends on the conversational context. And uh, in particular, it depends on what I will call the salient contrast in the context of the conversation. So, um, um, why does it seem so much more natural intuitively to think of one as an understatement and two as an overstatement rather than vice versa. Uh, I, that's because we are assuming, I assume, a conversational context in which the large number of co cops is what is of interest. That it's, it's, it's interesting and important in the conversational context that there are more than, are, than were expected, perhaps. Let's assume that ordinarily there's only one or two cops on the street, on the, on the corner, and now we have uh, uh, a dozen or so, and that's a, the fact that there's more than expected or more than uh, there usually are is what's of interest, uh, but the fact that there are fewer than 200 is not of interest because the idea that there might have been 200 has never even arisen. It's not, uh, not, it's, it's not something that's even being considered, the possibility of there being 200. I'm assuming that that's true in this context. So. Uh, uh, the speakers mean to emphasize both of them, okay, by exaggeration or by understatement, how large the number of cops is, not how small it is. Uh, they expect, probably, their addresses, 
addressees to understand that there are significantly more than two cops and also significantly fewer than 200. They don't expect uh, any, anyone to think that there might be 200. But the point, what they're uh, trying to get across in this context, is that there are as many cops as there are, quite a few, rather than fewer. It's not that there are that many of cops rather than 200 or rather than more. Uh, and the probable reason for this emphasis in this example, it's not the only possible reason, but the probable reason is the fact that it's a surprise that there are as many cops on the street as there are. It's not a surprise that there are fewer than 200. It is a surprise that there are more than one or two. Okay. Uh, so let's say that the salient contrast to what the speaker of either one or two asserts to be the case is a state of affairs in which there are fewer cops than she claims, that is in the case in which there are one or two or no, or no cops. That's what the speaker of both one, uh, the speaker of either one or two, is uh, emphasizing that it's not the case that there are only one or two cops. Uh, it is the case that there's more than that. That's the emphasis. Okay? So there being hundreds of cops, then, is what I'll call a non-salient contrast. By that I mean that the, it is a contrast because what the speaker is trying to get across is different from there being hundreds of cops on the uh, corner. Um, but it's not a salient contrast because that's not what people have in mind, not what people are concerned with, uh, not what is at issue in this particular conversational context. There's been no thought uh, by the speaker or the hearer or anyone about there maybe being hundreds of cops on the, on the uh, corner. Uh, we can put it by saying it's just not, that possibility is just not in the conversational error. So, two then, the exaggeration, uh, exaggerates the gap between what the speaker means to indicate and the salient contrast, and one, the understatement, understates this gap. And I have a diagram here somewhere, I think it's on the bottom of page three on your handout. Um, so, an understatement of how expensive, sorry, uh, no, maybe they don't have that. I guess they don't have that. Uh, anyway, um, so an, an, in a, the case of an overstatement, an exaggeration, the uh, uh, salient contrast um, and is on one side of the assertive contents and the uh, explicit content is on the other side. So the distance between the explicit content and the salient contrast is greater than the distance between the assertive content and the salient contrast. Um, I think I have a diagram here which will help to explain that. Uh, it's concerning three. Uh, so, uh, on the other hand, when uh, in the case of understatement, uh, the, uh, the distance between the explicit content and the salient contrast is smaller than the difference between the assertive content and the salient contrast. Um, I think I forgot to put on your handout something that I should have, but I guess there's nothing to do about it now. Um, so in general, to decide whether an utterance overstates a quantity or understates its opposite quantity. We need to locate the salient contrast in the conversational context. And uh, what counts is whether the explicit content exaggerates or understates the difference between what the speaker means to assert, the assertive content, context, content, and the salient con contrast. And this can be different, I think, uh, I've, this went by pretty quickly, I'm afraid, without a picture to look at. But uh, I think it will be clear when we think about uh, 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 Proposition 3. Uh, 
she was hospitalized for a month and they had to spend a few dollars on medical expenses. And this, as I mentioned, can go either way. In some contexts, this might be an exaggeration. In some cases, it might be an understatement. Uh, if the speaker's point in asserting three is that the hospitalization caused what it did rather than less than that, the salient contrast is that it cost less. And in this case, she's understating how expensive it was. And that might be the, what you'd expect. Okay, so if you say um, uh, she was hospitalized for a month and they had to spend a few dollars on medical expenses, um, the salient contrast is that it's um, cost less than that and you're emphasizing how large the amount was uh, in an understated way. Um, but if her point is, suppose the hospitalization was surprisingly inexpensive, if her point was that the hospitalization cost what it did rather than more, when she says we had to spend a few dollars, then the salient contrast is that it cost more than it actually did. Uh, so she's overstating then how inexpensive it was. Uh, so diagrammed, you see uh, on page three of your handout in the middle, diagrammed the difference is as follows. And I hope this makes it clear enough. Uh, understatement, um, uh, if the, sentence, the utterance is an understatement of how expensive the hospitalization was, um, if uh, the salient contrast is that it's very affordable, the speaker is trying to uh, explicitly to deny that it was very affordable, um, and um, uh, the, what the speaker is trying to get across is, of course, that it costs quite a bit more than that. Uh, but in the case of overstatement, uh, and it may be the sentence may be an overstatement of how inexpensive the hospitalization was, then the uh, salient contrast is that it was very, very expensive. And what the speaker means to be saying by saying it cost a few dollars is that's an exaggerated way of saying it didn't cost all that much. Okay. Um, now, what's crucial here, I think, and especially interesting, is that in the case of understatement, the salient contrast and the explicit content coincide or overlap. Um, you see that in the case of, uh, in, the first, in the understatement here, where it says very affordable, uh, the salient contrast is very affordable, and the explicit content is a few dollars. Um, they overlap, and what that means is that the speaker is voicing, saying explicitly, uh, uh, when her words are taken more or less literally, part of what she explicitly means to deny. Okay, that is, she's she's voicing the contrast, the salient contrast. She's voicing what she uh, uh, especially wants to deny is the case. And that, of course, shows how understatement is a cousin of irony. Because this one kind of case will be, of course, the case in which the salient contrast is just the opposite, the, con the, the contradictory of what the person actually says of the explicit content. And that is then what the speaker is voicing, is saying. And uh, uh, of course, in some cases of irony, at least, it's said that what the person, what the speaker does is to say the opposite of what they mean. Uh, okay. So I would prefer to define irony then in a somewhat different way, not just saying the opposite of what you mean, but uh, uttering, uh, 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 but saying something in which the salient contrast and the explicit content coincide or overlap. I think that's a better definition of irony. Um, okay, but overstatement is completely different because uh, overstatement has uh, the uh, ex explicit content and the salient contrast don't overlap at all. They are very, they're on opposite sides of the, of the uh, chart, uh, as you see. 
so this fits very nicely with uh, what Wilson and Sperber call a choic mention, which they take to be characteristic of or definitive of irony. The salient contrast is often, not always, but often something that other people have said or thought, uh, and uh, Sperber and Wilson have pointed, uh, pointed that out. Uh, if the salient contrast of an utterance is also its explicit content, the speaker can be said to be echoing it, echoing what somebody else said, which the speaker is then denying. Um, and if hearers are expected to notice this, the speaker may be understood to be mentioning or anyway referring to the uh, uh, previous utterance or assertion of what is the salient contrast. Um, so the fact that the ironist or the understater voices the salient contrast explains both the tendency of irony to include an expression of an attitude uh, toward those who might endorse the salient contrast and also the likelihood that this attitude will be a negative one since the voiced salient contrast is what the speaker means to deny. So the speaker is uh, then voicing the salient contrast uh, and uh, that uh, sets the speaker up uh, nicely to voice it in a sarcastic manner and uh, uh, expressing an attitude about the salient contrast and of course the attitude is very likely to be a negative one because it's a contrast, it's a contrast to what the speaker means to be asserting. Uh, this, I don't know if you are familiar, I know some of you are with uh, Sperber and Wilson, but I, as I recall, they make uh, these two conditions as necessary conditions, am I right, Mahela? I think necessary conditions for irony that the speaker be, certainly they say that the speaker is, is uh, echoing something that has been said or might be said. And I think they also say that it's always an expression of attitude and I think they also say it's always a, a negative attitude that's being expressed. And uh, so this way of setting it up explains all that, I think, rather nicely. Um, okay, uh, now uh, uh, can we explain, given what I've said so far, can we explain the surface differences that I mentioned before? First, the uh, uh, fact that the understate, understatement seems to work better when the assertive content is obviously true, when everyone can realizes or can see for themselves that it's true, than when it's not. Um, the, uh, uh, since, the, uh, since the understater voices the uh, salient contrast, the hearer might mistakenly think that the understater is not understating, might take uh, the speaker literally. If the hearer, if it wasn't obvious to the hearer already, uh, that that's false, okay? So uh, that makes it especially important uh, that the hearer be able to see what the speaker is getting at, that there are uh, more than a couple of cops on the corner uh, when the speaker uh, says that there are just a, there are a couple of cops on the corner, so it's obvious from what the hearer can see that the speaker is understating. Um, um, the exaggerator doesn't have to worry about being taken literally. Uh, that is the uh, be, because the exaggerator doesn't in the context isn't likely to worry about uh, someone taking him to assert the non-salient contrast because the non-salient contrast is a non-issue in the conversational uh, circumstances. Um, the exaggerator is not going to worry about uh, the speaker. Since the issue is, the question is, what's of interest in the context is whether there are, as usual, uh, only one or two cops on the corner or whether there are, as there actually are in this case, uh, a dozen or so, uh, the uh, speaker is not going to be worry, uh, worry especially about someone thinking there might really be hundreds on the corner. That's not an issue. So it's not a 
not a worry that the, the exaggerator is not going to worry that much about being taken literally. The understater, however, has to worry about that, and so the understater is likely to understate only when it's obvious that it is an understatement because the hearers can see what's actually the case. Um, what about the second point? Um, the understater's point... Um, uh, why should understaters welcome identifying their utterance as understatements and exaggerators be hesitant to emphasize that they are exaggerating? Uh, well, the understater's point is to distinguish her assertive content from the explicit content, that is, from the salient contrast in that case. So the understater is eager not to be taken literally. Uh, but the exaggerator's point is not to distinguish her assertive content from the uh, explicit content, that is, from the non-salient contrast. So she isn't so keen to prevent the hearer from taking her literally. Uh, okay. Um, well, I have a little bit more time. There's several things that are optional here. Uh, Raymond Gibbs uh, reports a conversation. I think he has misinterpreted a certain uh, utterance in a certain context as being an, uh, an understatement. Um, he reports a conversation between two roommates in which they complain with heavy irony, he says, about guests that a third roommate invited to their apartment. Um, these people in the conversation don't like these guests and don't appreciate them and so forth. So Anne, one of them, makes the following remarks. I just love it, you know, our housemates. They bring in the most wonderful guests in the world and they can totally relate to us. And... Uh, yeah, isn't that this great, Dana? Like tomorrow, like today, I was feeling all depressed and I came out and I saw the guests and they totally lightened up my mood. I was like the happiest person on earth. So Gibbs characterizes these following two sentences as nice examples of hyperbole, which he takes to be a form of irony. I think they're not hyperbole. Instead, they are uh, understatement. The two statements are... They bring in the most wonderful guests in the world and they can totally relate to us. And the other is, I was like the happiest person on earth. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that these are ironic, pretty obviously instances of irony. Uh, the roommates are actually conveying, as Gibbs says, their mutual displeasure about the people staying as guests in their apartment. But I don't think these are hyperbole, instances of hyperbole. I think they're instances of understatement. So Anne is not exaggerating how it's not exaggerating how wonderful the guests are. Remember, Anne said they bring in the most wonderful guests in the world, and they can totally relate to us. She's not exaggerating how wonderful the guests are. She doesn't mean that they are somewhat wonderful, more than might be expected. Um, uh, but exaggerating her point by calling them the most wonderful guests in the world. Her point is how awful they are. She's radically understating how awful they are by describing them as the most wonderful guests in the world. Uh, and uh, also, she is, not, she is not focusing on how happy... The second uh, a statement was, I was like the happiest person on earth. Uh, she's not focusing on how happy with them she is, uh, though expressing this with exaggeration, she's radically understating how unhappy she is when she says, I was like the happiest person on the world, in the world. Um, so the salient contrast in this context is a state of affairs in which the guests really are wonderful, moderately wonderful at least, or more than they might have been. This is what the speakers mean to be denying and uh, state affairs in which she's happy enough with them. And the speaker, Anne, is claiming that rather than this state of affairs obtaining, they're being moderately wonderful. The guests are not wonderful and she's not happy. Um, so it's a case of understatement. So the difference between what she asserts means to get across and the salient contrast is greater than the explicit content of her remarks suggest. Okay. Um, what shall we do?
maybe a couple of remarks about uh, salient contrasts, more or less in general. I suppose that all serious assertions, uh, uh, whether by means of a sentence literally or some non-literal manner, have salient contrasts. That is, I suppose, there is always something the speaker means particularly to rule out. The contradictory of what is asserted counts as a salient contrast. So to claim that it's raining is to claim that it's raining rather than not. And uh, that uh, it's not raining then is the salient contrast. That's simply the contradictory of uh, the claim that it is raining. Uh, but the interesting cases are ones in which the salient contrast is more specific than this. So the salient contrast of it is raining might be just it is snowing. Okay, that is, it, it, The speaker's point might be just it's raining rather than snowing, it being taken for granted and uninteresting in the context that is precipitating, that there's some kind of precipitation. Everyone knows that it's precipitation. The question in a particular context may be just, is it snow or rain? And then uh, someone might say, it's raining, uh, where the salient contrast is just that it's snowing. Okay, that's, the only, that's what this speaker uh, means to be ruling out. And she is saying simply, what she's saying is in effect, it's raining rather than snowing. Uh, not in this context, it's raining rather than not precipitating at all. Uh, uh, okay. But if, there, uh, if there's no thought of snow, the salient contrast might be just that there's no precipitation at all. That would be a different context. Uh, what makes a contrast salient? Well, in the policeman examples, the cops examples, I understood the salient contrast to be what is normally or ordinarily the case, what the parties to the conversation are likely to expect. But, of course, this is not always true of salient contrasts. If I assert that things are normal in some respect, if that's what my assertion is, the salient contrast would be something else, a less normal or less usual state of affairs. So in a context in which hospitalization is always inevitably horribly expensive, a speaker who points this out by saying uh, she was hospitalized for a month and they had several dollars in medical expenses, or a person who exaggerates by saying she was hospitalized for a month and they had to spend millions on medical expenses. The salient contrast is the unheard of circumstance uh, in which the hospitalization is easily affordable. It's not that that's a normal case, that's what the speaker is ruling out, whether the speaker understates or overstates, ruling out that unlikely and unheard of sort of uh, kind of situation. Uh, so the speaker is asserting that as expected, this hospitalization cost a lot of money rather than being affordable which is unheard of. But that is the salient contrast. That's what the speaker means specifically to be ruling out, even though that's not an expected state of affairs. Um, okay. Uh, the salient contrast, this connects with the Sperber-Wilson uh, view of irony. Uh, the salient contrast is often something that's, we might say, in the conversational air before the assertion has, is made, something that has been uttered or mentioned or thought about or hypothesized about or whatever, uh, something to which the speaker is responding. So the speaker asserts P with, this, with the force of P rather than that, rather than whatever it was that was in the conversational air that, pe air that people had been suggesting or thinking about or asserting or whatever. Um, uh, but salient contrasts don't have to be in the conversational air prior to the assertion. They don't have to be anything that anyone has believed or mentioned or thought about or fantasized about. Their salience may arise only with the assertion itself. And here I'm, uh, I guess, uh, disagreeing somewhat with uh, Sperber and Wilson. Um, so if I say on December 26, 2004, there's a tsunami off the coast of Sumatra this morning, um, this, and there was, 
the salient contrast uh, for my utterance in the conversation is that there was not a tsunami off the coast of Sumatra this morning. It's probably just the contradictory of uh, what I explicitly assert. Uh, so I assert that there was, rather than was not, a tsunami on the morning, uh, on, the, on, on that particular morning. And one might say, ironically, that um, uh, of course there was no tsunami this morning, uh, meaning that ironically, uh, in order to maybe spur uh, on efforts to, um, to rescue people from the disaster and so forth. Um, so I say, of course there is no tsunami this morning, but that there, and that again has as the salient contrast uh, that there was no tsunami this morning. That is a case of irony, a case of what I would call understatement. So the salient contrast coincides pretty much with the explicit content uh, and what I'm actually asserting is something different. Okay, something in contrast to the explicit content, in contrast to the salient contrast. I'm asserting, I mean to be getting across, mean to be asserting that there was a tsunami this morning. I, I do that by saying, of course, there was no tsunami this morning, where that's understood ironically. Uh, but, of course, the salient contrast um, needn't previously have been in anyone's consciousness or in any sense in the conversational air. Uh, when I say, of course, there was no tsunami this morning, it doesn't have to be the case that anyone has supposed that there was no tsunami this morning, or anyone has thought about that. I mean, I mean, people may not even have known what a tsunami was uh, previously. So that would be a case, I think, of irony, where it's not at all clear that there's anything like a echoic mention, uh, uh, the mention of something or reference to something that was in the conversational air, and I'm understanding that very, very broadly. Uh, but we do have a we do have a notion of. Uh, uh, salient contrast, which I think I want to propose in place of the echoic mention notion. It's a little bit broader, and it's in specifically, of course, what the speaker is especially meaning to deny. Uh, okay, I think I'll stop there. Thank you.